Now, last week we started a brand new series called Unstoppable, and the series is not on my preaching. Ha ha ha. <laughs> it, is on, it is on the Holy Spirit. That was a joke I came up with on the second, and I should never do that. I really should never do that. But it does cause us to think, why is the series on the Holy Spirit called Unstoppable? Well, that's just a good question to have marinating in your mind as we go through today's preach in the weeks to come. But before we go any further, I think it is appropriate as we're speaking about God's very presence to invite His presence here. Not that His presence is not here, but rather just like you can invite someone into your home and you can ignore them and get back to what you were doing, or you can fully engage their presence. And so let's all of us make a decision in prayer as we go into this message to really welcome and engage the presence of God who is here among us. Holy Spirit, you are the unstoppable work of God. And you have been at work since the point of creation and will continue through into new creation. And you are here. And we want to avail ourselves to you and we want to acknowledge that somehow you are the mysterious presence and power of God. And so we ask that you would do this morning what you do. And we open ourselves to your voice and to your presence and to your convicting power and your transforming power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way we're at least starting off this series is we're imagining that the big story of Scripture is like this beautiful tapestry. And a tapestry, for those of you who don't know, is this beautiful picture that's made up of a whole lot of threads that are weaved together. Each thread on its own tells a sub-part of the picture. You can pull the thread out and you can just see how it moves from one side to the other. But it also doesn't make sense on its own. And it makes most sense when put back into the story and how it contributes to the story. And so these threads are kind of a metaphor for the major themes of the stories of Scripture. We've got the big story going from creation all the way to new creation. But there are all these threads, all these themes. And I would argue that every major theme of Scripture that contributes to the big story are found on page one. Go all the way through the story of Israel, find this incredible fulfillment and clarity in the person and work of Jesus, and will find ultimate fulfillment in the new creation. And so these threads start all the way on page one in Scripture and go all the way towards the end. And that is so true of the theme of the Holy Spirit. And so the challenge was, for those of you who weren't here last week, is not to say, oh, the Holy Spirit, I know about the Holy Spirit. And every time the word Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament, for us to import all this knowledge into this word, rather we're almost going on the journey that the thread takes us on. We're almost pretending that what is being revealed to us is being revealed to us in the order that God kind of intended it. What can we learn on page one? And as we pull on this thread, what are we learning? How is our understanding growing? And how is that also contributing towards the big picture of Scripture? And so last week, we went at a fearful pace because we did a whole page one of Scripture. <laughs> and so for those of you who were here last week, it really felt like, well, are we ever going to get there? 
because we just started at the beginning. Today, we're going to move through almost the entirety of the Old Testament. So we're going to really go quickly today. And so fasten your seatbelts. And if you've got an espresso shot hiding away in a flask there, now would be a good time to take it. We're going to do a lot of Bible today, a lot of good theology, but we're wanting to know who God's Spirit is. Last week, as we looked at the moment of creation, we learned some incredibly important things concerning the person of the Holy Spirit. We, we did a number of Hebrew word studies, and that wasn't to show off, but really to see how the Hebrew language helps us understand who God's Spirit is. The word for spirit in Hebrew is the word ruach. Ruach, you've got to clear your throat. And uh, that word can be translated as spirit or breath or wind. And as we investigated that, we understood that God's Spirit is the source of life. But not only is God's Spirit the source of life, God's Spirit is also the one that gives life and animates life. The Spirit is God's creative energy, God's creative force. And I don't mean that in kind of new agey terms, because the Spirit is God's presence. It's a person, it's not just a force. We also learned that the Spirit takes darkness and brings light and life out of darkness, brings order out of chaos. That is who God's Spirit is. And if those were the only things we were to know about the Spirit of God, that is so much already. And in fact, everything else we're going to look at today or the weeks to follow, I believe are simply unpacking these four qualities concerning who God's Spirit is. We moved to Genesis chapter 2, where God creates humanity, where God took the ground. Anyone remember what the ground is called? If Adam's name is Adam, what is the ground called? Adama. All right, so God makes Adam out of the Adama. He makes man out of the dust of the ground. And then what does he do in verse 7? He breathes. Now we're hearing the word breathe, and we know what's going on. He breathes his life his very own life into the ground, and we get a living being, a soul, a nephesh. And so as one theologian said, and I quoted him last week, what is mankind but dust plus divine breath? And so not only do we see that mankind has the life of God in him, but he has a special relationship that the rest of creation doesn't have, the special relationship to the life and the power and the presence of God's Ruach, God's life, God's spirits. And on one hand, God does want to empower mankind to be animated by His life and breath to operate and to rule and to reign in the way that God's spirit does. And so a sense of independence or autonomy and by virtue of our life being so dependent on God's Spirit, God wants mankind to be intimately connected to His life, to His presence, to His spirits. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of mankind saying, I don't know if I need God's Spirit, God's presence, and I'm going to kind of go my own way. Now, before we jump back into the story, I want to kind of just wonder if the following is happening in your mind. You see, when it comes to often Christian conversations about the Holy Spirit, I have a fear that in our holy imaginations, it becomes too small a thing. And here's what I mean by that. 
You know, we've got uh, just a, this incredible growing understanding of the size of our cosmos and just how small planet Earth is in the greater scheme of things. And yet, if you go to planet Earth, at last count, we've just crossed over 8 billion people. Now, most of those 8 billion people believe in some form of God or gods. A subset of those 8 billion people believe in what we would call the Christian faith, that God has revealed himself most clearly through Jesus Christ. And then we get a smaller subset of Christians as they start to have differing views about the Holy Spirit until eventually we get to the point where you meet someone who's a Christian and maybe the conversation of the Holy Spirit comes up. Well, what does your church believe about the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what my church believes about the Holy Spirit. And somehow we're like getting into a smaller and smaller conversation until we're in such a tiny niche spot in our own imaginations that somehow... I don't know, I just fear the Spirit becomes small to us. But by starting where we've started, what I'm hoping is that something in your mind, it's like a roof being taken off a house. And you're just starting to realize just how cosmically important the role of the, and the work and the person of the Holy Spirit is. The whole of creation, the whole of humanity's life is dependent on the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when I use the word imagination, I'm not talking about when you call to draw a picture and you, you've got to make something up. I'm just like, what happens in our minds when we think about the spirits? And I'm really hoping that our minds are being increasingly blown by this. And so here's a big question for you. I mentioned earlier that Genesis chapter three tells a story of when mankind said, thank you for my life, God, we're gonna go our own way. And it's almost as if the rest of the scriptures are God bringing restoration back to what happened at that moment. So here's a question for you. When we look around us, do we see more of Genesis chapter 2 or more of Genesis chapter 3? Meaning, do we see mankind walking with God, enjoying His Spirit, enjoying the life that He gives us, enjoying creation? And when we go forward in our autonomy, it's a dependence autonomy where we represent the power and presence of God well to creation? Or do we see more of Genesis chapter 3, where we trust our own wisdom, our own understanding, where just like a dog on a leash, just wanting to get away from you, where God eventually lets the leash go and mankind goes his own way back towards chaos, right? So what do we see more of? Our adventure we see more of Genesis chapter 3 around us, right? Even in the stories of Scripture, that is pretty much what we see. Which is so weird because while we are trying to be so independent apart from God's presence, we are so dependent on His presence. We may even use the very breath He gives us to try to deny God. Kind of reminds me of something that came to light during COVID-19. Most of us here in this room have some form of smartphone, smart device with some form of technology. If you drove here in a car, maybe at some stage you would have used Google Maps to get here, or maybe some of your car has some technology in the car just to help with how it works well and its efficiency or giving you directions. Many of us here work with laptops and are dependent upon Wi-Fi. In other words, technology has become a massive part of most of our lives. 
And what happened in COVID-19 was there was a shortage of microchips that affected all the technology that we use. And it became apparent that all the microchips were dependent for the most part on one tiny country, the country of Taiwan, and one particular uh, business in Taiwan who are pretty much responsible for the global generation of semiconductors, which is where our chips come from. And so for the most part, you and I are completely oblivious to the fact that every time we use technology, there is one company in one tiny country responsible for all of it. But then all you need is a global disruption like COVID-19 or tensions between the United States and China just to remind us how dependent we are, right? And in the same breath, I hope the metaphor is becoming clear. While we aren't always aware of it, and while we're trying to live our own way, the truth is we are so dependent on the life-giving presence of God. Now, as we understand that man goes his own way and God wants to bring restoration to that space, how does the story unfold? And, and so as we continue along this thread, I wonder if you've ever thought about who is the first person in Scripture to be described as being filled with the presence of God. The first person in, in Scripture given this description is the person of Joseph. Fairly well-known story, and I'm just going to dive into the middle of the story for the sake of time this morning. But Joseph finds himself in the middle of Egypt in an Egyptian prison, happens to be Pharaoh's own prison. He's been falsely accused. He's away from his homeland. He has done everything he can to honor God, and yet here he is in extremely challenging circumstances. Two of Pharaoh's officials get thrown into prison, a cupbearer and a baker, and they're in trouble for some reason, and uh, they have some dreams, and they're very troubled by these dreams. And Pharaoh says, I'm sorry, Joseph says, well, I'm going to pray to God and see if I can interpret your dreams. He provides an interpretation to the cupbearer. He says, listen, I've got great news for you. You're going to be released tomorrow, and you're going to get your job back. The baker's also excited, except Joseph says, unfortunately for you, you're also going to be released tomorrow, only to be executed. And that is exactly what happens. But Joseph says, remember, he's been in prison for a while. He says to the cupbearer, when you get your job back, please don't forget about me. And then the next verse in Scripture just says, two years later. Come on, God, don't be like that. I'm doing everything you've called me to do. I'm being so faithful. And yet sometimes two years later. Anyway, two years later, Pharaoh himself has some extremely challenging dreams. He gets all of his wise men together and they, for the most part, can't figure out what these dreams mean. Cupbearer says, hang on, Mr. Pharaoh. I've just remembered there's a Hebrew in our prison here who God has empowered to interpret dreams. Let's see what he has to say. So Joseph is brought before the Pharaoh and Joseph hears the dreams and he prays to the Lord and he gets the following interpretation. He basically says, listen, Pharaoh, God is going to give Egypt seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine and challenge. And so Joseph says, 
Pharaoh, what you need is someone who's going to manage the abundance well. Someone who's going to fulfill this leadership role and ensure that all this abundance is stored and managed well so that during the years of famine, Egypt has plenty. And this is what Pharaoh says about such a person. He says, and it's interesting that Pharaoh was the one who recognized that Joseph was filled with the presence of God. He says this, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God. So Pharaoh recognizes that about Joseph and actually appoints him to be his right-hand man for this challenging season. You see, what Pharaoh is recognizing here is that God was kind of in a mysterious, heightened way operating through Joseph. No longer like in, the, in creation was God operating kind of you know, in space and doing his thing. But he started doing what he does, but through a person. He started giving Joseph divine enablements. The ability to see things that ordinarily he wouldn't be able to see or understand. He gave him divine wisdom. Why? Because they were heading to a time of chaos, a time of darkness. And God wanted to bring these people and just preserve their life as well as the life of Israel, that we're going to be in the same chaos and same darkness. And so the Spirit is doing creation, He's bringing order out of chaos, but through a person. So that's the first person described in Scripture as being filled with God's Spirit. The second time is found in Exodus 31, and says we preached on this a number of months ago, last year sometime. Exodus 31 verses 1 to 4 says this, And then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirits of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. This was concerning the making of the tabernacle. This is about a space where there would be a concentrated sense of God's presence and power on planet earth. And God wants the tabernacle to be made in a certain way with some intricate designs. And so what does he do? He takes this man, Bezalel, and his spirit is in him and on him so that the spirits of God can, for example, take the chaos and the disorder of raw materials and make something beautiful, something God-honoring, something that befits the presence of God. And so once again, God brings divine enablements through a person. Now we're going to move on as we think about the Old Testament. Who is probably the most prominent figure in the Old Testament? There's probably one of two answers, either Abraham or Moses. And, and I would argue Abra uh, Moses sorry, is probably the main figure in the Old Testament. Now, if we think about just the way God used Moses to perform miracles, you know, bringing the, the Israelites out of Egypt, somehow the, the, the God using Moses to bring the Israelites out of the darkness, out of the chaos of Egypt and this pagan land and towards his place of life and their future of life. Now, while there may be some clues that Moses was filled with the Spirit of God, I mean, he did these miracles, 
He could hear God's voice in an anointed way. God's blessing was upon his leadership. There was a story in the book of Numbers where him and the elders go up on a mountain and they experience the presence of God in a wonderful way. So we don't know exactly when he was, in a sense, filled with the Spirit of God. But when it comes to describing his death at the end of Deuteronomy, this is what it says. Now Joshua, son of Nun, Nun, was filled with the spirits of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. This was a baton change moment where Moses was used by God to lead his people away from the chaos and death of Egypt and towards the life of the promised land, baton changed to Joshua and Joshua now leads them into the promised land where there is chaos and death and darkness, but God wants to bring light and life to that part of the world. And so because of those reasons, he empowers Joshua with exactly the same spirit that he empowered empowered Moses with, exactly the same spirit that Joseph was empowered with, and exactly the same spirits that Bezalel was empowered with. Then we get to uh, kind of the book of Judges, which is a strange book because each of these judges, just as the Israelites settled in the land, the judges were like tribal leaders. They never had a king at the time. And, and some of these judges were just, they were horrible people. Uh, Samson, for example, I mean, we kind of think about him in these rose-tinted glasses kind of thing. But and he was a horrible guy. He was a sex addict. He was full of himself. And he had no concern for who God was. And yet there were times when God's Spirit came upon him. It's not based on his character, but based on the fact that God wanted to empower Samson to do something according to God's purposes. Most often these judges were empowered by God to release Israel from an oppressor, similar to being in Egypt, to bring them into life, to bring them into freedom until they went back to darkness and they needed another judge to come along the way. Then we get to the stories of the kings. And we're going to go straight to the greatest king, the king that becomes his archetype for the picture of Jesus and his lineage. And this is King David. And so here's a moment where King David is being described as being filled with God's spirits. 2 Samuel 23 verses 2, he says this, The spirits of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. In fact, in the New Testament, when David is quoted in the book of Acts, he's not quoted as David says, but as the Holy Spirit said through David. When David sinned, Psalm 51 verses 10 to 11, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David had become so accustomed to enjoying the presence, the life-giving spirits of God. And he was afraid because of his sin, God might remove that from him because that is in fact what happened to his predecessor, King Saul. So once again, why did David need to be filled with God's spirits? Well, God wanted a nation where a greater sense of his power and presence could reside, where his life and his blessing could flow in them and through them to the surrounding nations, a place where the pagan nations could look in and see what the life of God looked like 
And so God wanted an empowered leadership. And the more David walked in step with the spirits of God, the more David lived in enjoyments of the life-giving spirits of God, the more Israel flourished. And the more God's life and creative energy could be experienced. But the more David walked away from that, the more Israel went towards darkness and towards chaos. And unfortunately, the rest of the books of 1 and 2 Kings just become a story of increasingly, with the occasional light going on, increasingly the leadership of Israel moving away from God's presence. As a consequence, Israel moving away from God's presence. And every time they did that, more death, more chaos, more of a wasteland of God's presence. Until literally after centuries, centuries of God speaking to Israel through His prophets. This is the final group of people that were empowered by God to be His representatives. Through whom God's work could be done through a person. For example, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 2.2 says, As He spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And I heard Him speaking to me. So even though God used these leaders and these prophets to try and lead and give divine direction to the, gods, to the people of God, somehow, like that dog on a leash, they kept on going the other way into death and chaos until eventually God gave them what they wanted. Unfortunately, leading them towards exile, out of the promised land, away from the power and the presence of the life-giving Spirits of God, which doesn't make sense, I suppose, on one hand, because, man, if we could just see the Old Testament like we've just seen it, that every time we remain close to God's voice, God's presence, God's spirit, God's heart, we see and experience His light and His life, right? And every time we go this way, it somehow takes us towards chaos and darkness. And we can be very harsh on those Israelites, except how often are we the same? How often do we see the same thing in humanity around us and even in our own hearts and lives? We can experience God's life-giving presence and blessing. And yet something in us just goes this way all the time. It is not logical. It's like there is something wrong within us. The Bible calls it our sinful nature. So Israel founds themselves in this darkness, in this sin, the consequences of their rebellion, in exile. God's Spirit, Ezekiel actually sees the presence of God going out of the temple. God's glory is gone. Now, some of the prophets kind of spoke to the Israelites as they were heading towards the time of exile, just calling them to repentance, calling them to turn towards God, warning them of what would happen if they didn't. Words of judgment to Israel, to Judah and to the nations, but they refused to listen. And then we get some prophets who are around the time of exile. And one of those prophets is the person of Isaiah. He kind of straddles the beginning, the middle and the end of exile. But they're looking forward to this time. What is God going to do next? This life-giving, light-bringing Spirit of God. Now that we've almost gone back to chaos and sin and darkness, how is God going to restore His glory and His presence among us? 
and through their divine enablement and their ability to see what the rest of us don't ordinarily see, a number of prophets started to see two major things that God's Spirit was going to do. For us, it's mainly past. For them, it's very much future. But I want to read about the one kind of thing that they started to see that God was going to do in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. What is a stump? A stump is all that's left of a tree, a beautiful big tree that's been chopped down. And that stump represents Israel, God's people who showed so much promise, but were so committed to their path of rebellion that they were cut down. What sometimes happens is, especially with those blue gum trees, Right, They just find a stubborn way of coming back to life. And that is what's being described here. A shoot will come up from the stump. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirits of the Lord will rest on him. The spirits of wisdom and of understanding. The spirits of counsel and of might. The spirits of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And just some... Bible geek trivia here. There are seven descriptions given here to the Spirit of God. And this is probably what John means in Revelation when he talks about the sevenfold spirits of God. And it says, yeah, and he, this is this branch. He will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, meaning his words, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. See, here's what's going on here. Even when we look at the high points of some of these leaders being filled with God's spirits and seeing the high points of what God's spirits did through them, leading God's people towards light and life and salvation. Even they did it imperfectly. All right, David goes from this man after God's own heart to committing adultery and getting the husband of this woman killed and living in the consequences of that. But Moses got angry and he wasn't allowed into the, the Holy Land because of how his faith was just in a very challenging moment. So even at the high points, We've got these people who, yes, God's Spirit did what God's Spirit does through these people, and yet there was also such failure. It is only like a partial gain. And that doesn't even speak about those who weren't filled with the presence of God and just took Israel towards chaos and death and darkness and sin and rebellion. And so, doesn't it make sense? We need a leader like Joseph. We need someone who can be a leader like Moses, like Joshua, like the prophets, who can be so filled with the presence of God without failure, without dilution, without their own sinful nature taking them their own way. That there's almost this inseparable balance between who this person is and the presence and the power of God's spirits so that the rest of us can be led towards life out of darkness into God's glorious light. I wonder who that is. 
written 700 years before Jesus came. There are a number of passages in Scripture pointing towards this leader, this shepherd, this figure, this branch, this person on whom God's Spirit will dwell in such a heavy sense that it will be as if everything they say and do will be the work of God through him. But the second thing is while in the Old Testament up to that point, we've got these key leaders, we've got the Josephs, we've got the Moseses, we've got the Joshuas, we've got the prophets, but they were few and far between. They were only these leaders who were filled in some sense by God's mysterious power and presence. And not only are we looking ahead to the time where there will be a leader, this person who will be so filled with the Spirit of God, but also the prophet started to discern a moment in the future where all of God's people would be filled with the Spirit of God. There are a number of places I could go, but I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel is one of the prophets speaking to God's people in exile. They're living in the consequences of their rebellion, in the death and chaos of being in a pagan nation. And God gives Ezekiel this vision, a valley of dry bones, very famous vision. And this is what God says to Ezekiel in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones, meaning speak as if you're speaking my own voice. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you. And you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. And I will put my breath in you and you will come to life. And then you'll know that I'm the Lord. And so... I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, probably freaked him out. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. At this point, they looked like a human, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath, from the four winds, breath, spirit, life, wind. And breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, not just one person, but a vast army. And then jumping ahead to verse 14, just the first part, I will put my spirit in you, plural. And you, plural, will live. I wonder, looking at this thread that we've been looking at, I wonder if we can think of a time, a very poignant moment in Scripture where God formed a man and yet he wasn't alive until he took his own breath and breathed into him. What's going on here? What's going on here in Ezekiel 37 is a do-over of Genesis chapter 2. It's humanity 2.0. It's a new humanity that God is forming. It's a new creation. Except not only is it one person who has the life of God, it's a whole bunch of people who have the life and the presence, the spirits of God in them. This new humanity that God is forming. And so as the prophets look ahead, 
They are waiting for a time where there would be a person who is so filled with God's spirit and power and presence. It's as if he was God himself. And they look forward to the time. We don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know what it's going to look like, but where all of God's people are filled with God's power and presence and spirit. And so there are these cliffhangers that as we get to the end of the Old Testament, we're left with. Again, we could say, God, well, I know where we're going with this. Well, just imagine we got there and we're like, God, what are you going to do? What is this going to look like? What is this hope going to look like? How is this going to be fulfilled? Now, as we've listened to these stories, what is the big idea we get from the Old Testament here? The big idea, and I know we're living in the time of the New Testament, and so I'm kind of mixing some realities here, but I know that as we look at these stories of the Old Testament, I know that some of you are just feeling like, I wish God could do that in my life. Because we're learning that when God's Spirit fills somebody, God's Spirit does what God's Spirit does, but through a person. And so maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, God, I just heard that story of, of Joseph. And I'm just going through a time of, of challenge and I'm looking forward to a time of chaos and maybe I've had some abundance or maybe I've got some abundance, but I don't know where that's going. And so Lord, I need some of that spirit on me. I need some of that wisdom. I need some of that insight. I need some of that divine enablement. Maybe you're looking at Joshua and Moses and you're saying, Lord, whatever spirit they had, to lead God's people out of death and darkness towards light and life. Lord, I need some of that in my life. Maybe you are a leader. You're a leader of teams or you're a leader of staff or maybe you're a leader of two kids. Or you work with some people around you and you're saying, God, I've got this responsibility and I want to be a place on planet earth, a person on planet earth, earth through whom you are able to lead the people under my leadership towards life. Now listen, this is not some like little formula that we pray so that our businesses can be successful. Because worldly success is not always the same as kingdom success. Like in the case of Joseph, God can use abundance for the blessing of his people. Absolutely. But I'm not saying, okay, Lord, bless me with the wisdom of Joseph and, and Joshua and Moses so that my company can thrive. The greater and bigger heart is, Lord, fill me with the spirits of Moses and Joshua and Joseph so that I can become a point of life to others. And I can lead people out of the chaos of this world towards the life that you want for them so that they too can taste and see that the Lord is good. And use me in my influence, in my leadership. But God, I need your help. I need your divine enablements. Just by the way, that spirits of wisdom and understanding that was upon Moses and Joshua, I believe Paul wants for every single one of us. According to Ephesians chapter 1. And listen, that's probably one of the things I pray for most. Lord, whatever spirit was on Moses and Joshua, 
I pray that is that upon me as well. Maybe you hear about the prophets. And while over the course of the series, we're going to hear about kind of New Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets, and the time of the Old Testament prophets has come and gone. But even aside from that, you're just hearing God, but I want to be a voice piece. I want to be used by you to speak your perspective into the world around me. I want to see what others don't always see. I want to see life and reality in your word and your presence the way you see it. And I want you to enable my heart and my voice to be able to speak these things. So once again, I'm not this glorified prophet, but through the words of my mouth, people would know and experience the life of God. And so I'm wondering, even looking at these Old Testament figures that God used, is there something in you that is saying, oh God, I'm so desperate for that. Would you use me to do what your spirit does? But in my life, in the chaos and the darkness that surrounds me and my context and my situation. And I believe the answer to that prayer is yes. As we're going to discover in the weeks to come. But I'm going to ask that we pray together. And Father, as we realized last week, there is no shortage of darkness and chaos and death around us. We find ourselves more often than not surrounded by and almost defined by death and darkness and and forces that are working against the life and the presence of you, my God. And maybe even if I look at my own life, I just see chaos reigning. But maybe today, Lord, I want to come before you and I want to submit myself to you. Lord, that you would use me just like you breathe into Adam and just like your spirit said, you're going to breathe into a new humanity. Lord, would you breathe into me I open myself to your life to be used by you. Lord, I want to become a a physical place on planet earth that increasingly becomes a place of light and life to those around me. But I need your help. Lord, I need your ruach. I need your presence. I need your spirits. And God, I surrender to what that's going to look like. Would you use me like clay in your hands as what seems best to you? Would you give me what seems best to you, what is best for my situation, my context? But God, I'm tired of the death around me. And so Holy Spirit, breathe into us. And if that at some level is your prayer, I want to invite you to stand. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your context is. I don't know what the death and the chaos is that you've got in mind, but Lord, use me. And just as a physical sign, I'm going to stand. 
I'm going to stand just as, as a symbol of my willingness to depend on you. Yes, Lord.